All right, well, it looks like we're at time, so we'll go ahead and get started, even though people are going to come trickling in after the fact. That's just fine. So we are in uh, Has American Christianity Failed by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and uh, we're going to be wrapping up the section on baptism and infant baptism, and going on into the Lord's Supper, we'll treat on that, and then immediately after the Lutheran position on good works, which also happens to really be the Bible's position on good works, so we're going to go in and do that next. Um, but before we get started, let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. So, picking back up on page 132-133, where we left off, I think just to simply summarize where we've been, um, we baptize because our Lord says to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Um, so this we do. We don't discriminate on the basis of, of uh, age or race or hair color or anything else. Um, all nations. And then also all um, you see households, entire households getting baptized. And then you have this very explicit word from Peter that um, this promise is for you and for your children, right? And then the goalposts move very frequently. People say, well, you have to have faith to be baptized, and infants can't have faith. And of course, if we turn to the scriptures, we see Jesus talking about these micron, these little ones who believe in me. We see John the Baptist as a fetus leaping in Elizabeth, his mother's womb, um, in, to hear the voice of Mary and hear her greeting. So we know that infants can and do have faith, and we're not going to define faith as some sort of like cognition or um, ability to articulate one's faith mentally or verbally. Um, all of this is is really uh, just kind of a post enlightenment view of what faith is, and we kind of use the analogy of baby is is happy and content in mom's arms, newborn baby, and gets handed over to a stranger and starts crying and goes back to mom's arms and is fine again, is comforted. And it's not as if the baby is cognating like, well, I'm in a stranger's arms and I don't know if I can trust this. You know, it's there's this deeper sense of just I'm safe, I'm at home, I'm in familiar arms and uh, all is good versus this is strange, this is different, I don't trust this. So just at this innate level that's below being able to verbally articulate, articulate it or cognate it, um, simply trust in the inner being. And so by this, we have an analogy for what faith in Jesus is. Okay, so um, we uh, will just simply draw this section to, to a close unless there's anything else that anyone wants to talk about, about baptism or... Um, Baptism of little ones. I see a hand come come up over here. I was just thinking uh, at the end of class last week. Who are we to say that the uh, 
baby's brain is inferior to ours. When you think of what a baby's brain does in just a couple of years, it learns a new concept of language. Of course, we think it's software inside the brain that God created, but they become fluent speakers, they learn how to walk, recognize people, etc., etc., which is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. When we start to learn a language, say, at 25, it's a lot more difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And kids naturally believe what they're told. Um, that's why teaching your children falsely is such a pernicious and grave thing, because they're just sponges. Um, but if you teach them Christianity, even if they have questions along the way, those questions are always in good faith. They're always good intentions. When you get to adults, you're not so lucky. <laughs> adults, we have all kinds of hang-ups and doubts, and um, you know, it is just kind of one of the one of the beautiful things about children is how, um, when you do teach the faith, they absorb it much faster and with much less difficulty and sin and sarcasm and all the rest uh, pushback that that we adults experience when we try to learn something new in the faith. Yep, thank you for that. Okay. So Wolf Mueller is going to take us on to the Lord's Supper, and he has this uh, feeding on forgiveness at the bottom of one thirty-three, and and I intend to skip around a little bit, but at first let's just see where he's coming from. So bottom of one thirty-three, he writes, "The Bible's teaching on the Lord's Supper spun me out of the orbit of American Christianity, and at last brought me into the orbit of the Lutheran Church." I learned in American Christianity to take the Bible seriously and read the words literally. This was good. We should believe what the Bible says. But when American Christianity comes to the words of Jesus, this is my body, teachers trip over themselves, backpedaling from the text. Jesus doesn't mean that the bread is his body, but that the bread symbolizes his body that it is a picture of his body. See, it says, do this in remembrance. That was the argument. That apparently was supposed to settle it. By the time the words of Jesus are explained away, it is as if he said, this is not my body. I didn't buy it. The words don't mean what they sound like they mean. Jesus didn't mean what he said. But why? Why can't is mean is? If Jesus wants to give us his body in, with, and under the bread for the forgiveness of our sins, surely he can. That, in fact, is exactly what it looks like he is doing. If we take the Bible seriously and read the words literally, why not give these particularly important words a serious reading? It is Thursday of Holy Week. Jesus knows his death is hours away. He and the disciples had finished the Passover meal. Jesus had washed their feet. Now he takes bread, breaks it, gives thanks, and says these astonishing words. Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He takes the cup full of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gives it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And then 
he lists uh, multiple references here, the, the four, Matthew, Luke, Mark, and 1 Corinthians. All right, and then he says, we will consider these words. So, right, a Bible-believing church here in America is a Bible-believing church right up until you get to that part of the Bible where Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, and then all of a sudden it's not so Bible-believing anymore. And that's, I think, a very fair criticism and critique. If we're going to insert the words, this symbolizes my body or this symbolizes my blood, if you say that something symbolizes something else, it's tantamount to saying it isn't exactly that thing, right? If I, um, you know, take up, take some of my daughter's Play-Doh and make it into a little figure of myself and say, here, put this on your dresser. This symbolizes me. I'm effectively saying this isn't me. It's something that symbolizes me. Okay. So, that language of symbolism can at first be attractive because it's attractive to our fallen reason. And it's, oh, I don't have to understand this literally, I can understand this symbolically. And reason grasps a hold of that uncertainty. But when you probe into what that word symbolism means, it effectively means is not. A symbol of a thing, by definition, is not that thing. So Jesus says, this is my body, and if you insert words into his mouth, this symbolizes my body. You're having him say effectively, this is not my body. So the language of symbolism directly contradicts Jesus. Plus, there's a kind of absurdity here, that if Jesus says, take, eat, this symbolizes my body, he's effectively saying, take, eat, this isn't my body. What good does that do anyone? Okay. So, um, we're going to talk about uh, this now in, in, in a little bit of depth and detail. But what we want to do is have in mind the words of Jesus. And um, so he's just kind of recapitulated them for us here <laughs> on 134. He's given us, a, uh, he's given us um, the essence of these words. Take and eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Um, now, what he's going to do for us is kind of break it down in some of the key terms um, that Jesus uses. So far, so good? Okay, so the first one that he brings up is testament. The Greek word is diatheke. It can be translated as covenant or testament. Um, why testament tends to be preferred by English speakers is because covenant tends in English to have this idea of two parties both contributing to an agreement. But you can also have a unilateral covenant, which is just one party making a covenant with another. Um, so really there's, there's nothing here except maybe a slight preference for testament in English. But whether it's testament or covenant doesn't ultimately matter how one interprets that word Diatheke. All right. So, um, but the strength also of seeing it again in English as a testament is this idea that where do we use the language of testament? Your last will and testament. We can see how, um, this is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. When he says this is the test, this is his last will and testament. In other words, this is solemn language. This is legal language. This is binding language. 
So this isn't the time where Jesus is going to insert all kinds of symbolism and weird stuff you got to try to figure out. This is his straight, in, in terms of context, this is a time to speak straightforwardly. And, you know, how easy is it to, after someone has died, to alter their last will and testament? You're not supposed to at all! <laughs> and so we have Jesus' last will and testament, and then he dies. We're not allowed to go back there and change it, scratch out the word is, and put in the word symbolizes. We're not allowed to do that. This is his last will and testament. All right, so if you look at the last paragraph under this section on 135, a testament, I think this does a good job of summarizing Wolfmuller's point. The old Lutheran theologians love to talk about this word testament. They knew Jesus was using legal language. While both covenant and testament refer to a legally binding agreement, Jesus was establishing that which would have enduring effect and benefit. He was establishing a sacrament that would testify about him after his death according to his instructions. All right? Um, let's jump into then the modifier and Wolfmuller has this as the new kind of testament, but Jesus doesn't just say the uh, covenant or testament, but the new covenant or new testament. In what sense is it new? Um, let's, let's let Wolfmuller do some of the lifting here. Um, 135. The next word to catch our attention is the word new. There is an old testimony about what God has done contained in the Old Testament. This only adds to the confusion about using these terms interchangeably with regard to the Lord's Supper. God established the Old Covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai. It involved the Passover, the Temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. The Old Covenant had circumcision, the blood of bulls and goats, and a lot of forbidden food. The Old Covenant was always pointing forward to the coming Messiah. The prophets of the Old Covenant were preparatory, preaching the kingdom of God that was to come. This old covenant was constantly pointing to Jesus, preaching him, delivering his promised forgiveness to the people. When Jesus arrived, the promise of the old covenant was rapidly coming to an end. Its purpose was fulfilled. God established something new with the coming of his Christ, the new covenant contained in the New Testament between Christ and his church begins where the old covenant ends, the death of Jesus. The old covenant had the marks of circumcision and the sacrifices at the tabernacle and temple in Jerusalem. The new covenant has the marks of baptism and especially the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was a formal act that established and instituted the Lord's New Testament people, the church. All right, let's pause there. If you were to go back and look at the Old Testament, it is ratified and instantiated when the people are sprinkled with the blood of the bulls at Mount Sinai. So that would be like, what if you asked, what is the blood of the Old Covenant? It's the blood of bulls being sprinkled on the people. So when Jesus says, take drink, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, you see what's going on. 
It's not being sprinkled with the blood of bulls, but now it's consuming the blood of Christ. That's the essence of the an instantiation of these two different covenants. And then their entire like covenantal economies. So as Wolf Mueller says in the Old Covenant, you have circumcision and sacrifice. In the New Covenant, you have baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then there's various other ways that we could articulate the differences between the two covenantal economies, as it were. And all I mean there is just the ordering. Okay, so the New Covenant is instantiated not with the blood of bulls, but with the blood of Christ. Not sprinkled, but consumed. So far, so good? Alright, so that gets us to this idea of covenant and testament, and then the sense in which it's new. And Wolf Mueller is going to point to Jeremiah 31. It's fine. Um, if somebody wants me to go into that, I'll go into that. Otherwise, I'll skip over it. Um, but it's just, just Jeremiah in chapter 31 prophesies of a new covenant or a new testament that's to come. And that's fulfilled in what Christ gives in the supper and then the economy of the uh, new covenant of Christ. So let's pause there, see if you have any thoughts. Otherwise, we're going to move on to a different term, the do this. Yeah, please. Um, I get confused. So is the Old Testament pointing to the New Testament or it has nothing to do with it? Okay, yeah. So just to clarify terms, the way we've been using Old Testament is in a narrow technical sense of what happens with Moses on Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the civil and ceremonial laws given to the people. This whole covenant that God makes with his people works in every way to direct toward Christ. Okay. Now, the forgiveness that is distributed through the old covenant, um, the atoning sacrifices, the sin offerings, is a forgiveness that's going to be won by Christ crucified and then distributed through these means. So the Bible can say that these sacrifices both forgive sins and don't forgive sins. Okay. Um, they forgive sins because of the atonement of Christ yet to come. They don't forgive sins in and of themselves or apart from that, right? Okay, so did I answer your question? Yeah? All right, good enough. Please. Yeah, um, is it fair for us to look at the Passover uh, blood out on the uh, doorpost uh, as a a life-saving similar thing at, at, at the blood of the bulls. Uh, it, in other words, it's kind of salvific. Um, just like in baptism, there's water all over the place in the Old Testament. There might be what, blood all over the place mm-hmm. that's kind of strange uh, yeah. in the in the Old Testament, too. Yeah, Um so in the in the last plague, the tenth plague that befalls Egypt, it's the death of the firstborn of everyone, Jew and Gentile and even animals. So the only thing that will prevent this is what? Blood. The blood of the lamb over the door. That's the only thing that will... So God's death sentence is upon all firstborn in that, in that plague indiscriminate. And then it's the blood of the Lamb that protects from death, that blots out that iniquity with which God has cause, and stays the hand of the angel of death such that the angel of death passes over. 
the house that's protected by the blood. So there's a parallel to this. It's just an expansion of this that, in fact, it's not, in our case, just the firstborn who's in jeopardy, but all of us who are in jeopardy. The angel of death has claim on all of us on account of our rebellion and sin against the one who is life. And how are we going to be saved from death that leads to eternal death? Only by the blood of Jesus interposed. Not on a physical house, but now poured into your lips, literally protecting your the house of your body, as it were, um, interposing that blood between you and the angel of death, so that the angel of death passes over. So that though you die, yet shall you live, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Yeah, so this, this sometimes is hard for us to wrap our minds around because it's so physical. In the Old Testament, I mean, if you didn't physically slay the lamb and physically paint his blood and have real blood staining the doorposts, your son was going to die. Now, it is interesting that there was real blood there, and it's in the context of the very Passover meal that Jesus takes the cup and says, this is my Blood. Why on earth would we think that real blood is being replaced with symbolic blood? And the same would be true when you look at the Old Covenant, where, where the people are being sprinkled by the real blood of bulls. Why would we suddenly think that real blood is replaced by imaginary blood, by wine that's just pretending to be blood? It makes zero sense. Zero. And, and actually, <laughs> <laughs> the, it's worse because you're not only accusing Christ of lying, you're accusing God of being a terrible storyteller. Here's all of this real blood and real drama and real things, and the climax is, it's all fake and symbolic and imaginary and in your head. I mean, that's just terrible storytelling. It's a terrible anticlimax. And this, by the way, is why the... Uh, Christian church in America is often so interested in going back into the Old Testament with all of these fads. We've got to get back to the Seder. We've got to live. I hear that there's this new trend starting. I don't know anything about it firsthand, but are you living the Torah life? And are you going back to the dietary restrictions? And are you going back to the restrictions in regard to your garments? And are you keeping the Torah? And the apostles are rolling over their graves. and Jesus isn't in his grave to roll over. <laughs> so this is, um, this is what happens when we depart from the reality of the things Christ has given. We make them all symbolic and imaginary and nonsense. And then people lust and long for when God really, truly acted concretely. And again, from a, from a biblical perspective, a New Testament perspective, the perspective of the apostles and 2,000 years of, of church fathers and theologians and saints up to the very present, we just look at and go, have you lost your mind? Do you have the real blood of Jesus poured out onto your lips? You have a new covenant. You have a new Passover. This is given to you in fact. This is what all the fathers, the patriarchs, and the prophets and the psalmists preached about was this time in which you're living and you want to go back? <laughs> I think you missed something. So, yeah, I, this is, um, this is a big deal. Real blood 
in the Old Testament means real blood in the New Testament. And of course, the author of Hebrews, if you read that, you can't miss it. Um, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And that means not only that Christ died for you, but it means that his blood has to be shed for you to atone for your sins. His blood needs to touch you to cleanse you. Um, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins, John says. And that's not in the abstract. That's not in the imagination. That's not something that happened 2,000 years ago. That's something that connects us with the cross, where the very blood shed on the cross is now poured into our lips, into our bodies, cleansing us, body and soul, skin to bone, of all our sins. But if it's not real blood, it's not going to do that. Okay, please. I know you've been trying to get a word in edgewise. Uh, when I first became a Lutheran, it was at Missouri Senate. I, is this where I can ask what, regarding communion, what transubstantiation means? Because sure. that's what they talked about. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so the way that, in my experience as a pastor, the way that people talk about transubstantiation is different than what it actually means. Okay. So I think when you talk, when you run into somebody who talks about transubstantiation, the first thing you want to do is say, what do you mean by that? Before you literally say anything. Okay. Because generally speaking, what I've found is that when people talk about transubstantiation, this is what they mean by that word that you are actually eating the body of Jesus and drinking the blood of Jesus. Okay. So then, so then if, if a, if someone comes to me and says, do you believe in transubstantiation? And I just immediately as a Lutheran say, no, of course not. That's Roman Catholic. Their, their next statement might be something like, I think it's symbolic too. You see, so you want to be really careful with this. The way it's being used in common parlance is the true body and blood of Christ in the sacrament. All right. Now, that's why you want to ask and get clarification from whoever's using the word and then um, address it on those terms. And then maybe you can do a little education as to what transubstantiation actually is. Now, this is a little hard to wrap your minds around. I'll try to do it quickly, but not too quickly to where it's worthless. Okay. So this is based on... um, Aristotelian categories of substance and accident, okay? And uh, popularized largely by Thomas Aquinas, who predates Luther by a couple hundred years or so. And this has become doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church, all right? Now, what this actually means is, um, okay, so you have you have two things. When you're just thinking about the bread, You have two things, and these are both fairly abstract, but you have its substance and its accident. Um, The accidental properties of it are like the way it appears and smells and everything else. They're in Aristotle's categories. There's there are things that you could change, um, and it would still be bread. That's the that's the philosophical definition of an accident. If you change the substance, it's no longer bread. Okay, so transubstantiation takes this philosophical framework and says, we're going to take the substance of the bread away and put the substance of Christ's body there under the accidents of the bread. You see, so it looks like bread, smells like bread, tastes like bread, 
but is in fact substantively the body. Now, what you end up doing with this, though, is you can't in any way point to that and say that it's bread. Because the substance of the bread has been removed and replaced with the substance of the body. That's the trans-substance, substantiation. Okay, So that a Roman Catholic looks and says of the consecrated bread and wine, this is not bread, it is his body, this is not wine, it is his blood. Okay. What do Lutherans say about that? Well, there's a problem, because St. Paul refers in Holy Scripture to the consecrated elements as both bread and body, for example. We might even say, well, and as wine and as blood, or as cup and as blood. Okay? So, what do we see instead of transubstantiation? Plus, we're uncomfy because transubstantiation is, you know, if you're going to bind somebody's conscience, like you have to believe this, or it's sinful to believe otherwise, it's like, well, I have to believe Aristotle, and I have to believe that all, this is how it all works, and um, it, and it creates a, a mess. So, you can see why it kind of tends to be a harmless heresy, or a harmless false teaching, but it is still a false teaching. And its real harm comes in binding people's conscience to this. All right, what's the Lutheran view? Well, in a sense, it's just not sophisticated. We're just not going to use Aristotle this way, and we're not going to... By the way, there's more problems that I'm not really going down that rabbit trail. When you do these with Aristotle's categories, it's a contradiction in Aristotle himself. So you have to start multiplying miracles that not only does Christ... Um, make his body present, that would be like one miracle, but then he changes the substance of one thing with another, that would be another miracle, and then the fact that something exists with one, with a substance that unto its own, but accidents belonging to another substance would be another miracle. And so you get into this like, this kind of never-ending chain of miracles required to hold to the technical doctrine of transubstantiation. All right, so what do um, Reformed and some evangelicals do to slander Lutherans? It goes like this. Uh, Roman Catholics believe in transubstantiation. Lutherans believe in consubstantiation. And we believe the Bible. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely? All right. So consubstantiation is something that is labeled, put upon us that we believe consubstantiation. We as Lutherans don't believe in consubstantiation in any way, shape, or form. All right. Now, on that argument, things get real technical because we get immediately into Christology. And that's sort of what's always looming in the background of the sacramental talk of Christ's body and Christ's blood and given and shed for us, and it's always Christology is just right behind, kind of waiting in the same room to be dealt with. Now, this is a helpful, this is a helpful way of thinking, though, to, or to, to actually get what the Lutheran possession is, which if you had to label it, you would just say sacramental union. Okay, and it goes like this. Think of Jesus. Think of Christ. He's true God and true man in one person. Okay? What are you receiving in your mouth? True bread and true body in one thing. See how that works? Perfect. Beautiful. That's the Lutheran articulation. What are you receiving? True blood and true wine in one thing. So I can say 
his blood is wine, this wine is his blood. Both of those are fine. Um, we would typically say the, the, the wine that is his blood, the bread that is his body. Okay. And that's perfectly in keeping with Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. And it's perfectly in keeping with uh, kind of the Christological analogy. When you get into consubstantiation, there's all different ways of thinking about this, but this was mainly in the 16th century, the attacks of the radical reformers who hated the idea that we are receiving Christ. So their attacks are not just against Lutherans, but also against Roman Catholics. They hated the idea that we are receiving Christ's body and blood by mouth. And so they attacked this any number of ways they could. One way they would do it, and it's usually like really gross because they try to just make it gross and repugnant. So they would say, oh, it's, it's body, um, like physically body baked into the bread into like a crab cake or something, you know, which crab cakes are disgusting enough, I think. What an abomination. What a waste of good crab. <laughs> just teasing. Um, okay, but what is this, what is this analogous to this mixing the two together such that you no longer have bread or body, but you've just got this bread body. That's analogous to the Christological heresy of Eutychianism, where you've combined the human and divine natures to where now you don't have something It's not either human or divine. It's kind of Hercules' figure, right? So you can use your Christology now to parse that out. What's an, what's another way that we get accused of consubstantiation? That you've got these two substances, namely the substance of the body and the substance of the bread, glued together, okay, and then they're received in this way. Well, we know that's false right away because Jesus takes bread and says, this is my body, not the bread and my body are nailed together. But this also has its it's analogy in Christological heresy. That's Nestorianizing. When you've got these two things, the true humanity and true divinity of Christ that remain two things and don't become one person, such that then you've got like bread and body that remain two distinct things and don't become one. So again, the Lutheran position is firmly biblical. I mean, in the first place, what Jesus says is what we believe. It is he takes bread, this bread is his body. He takes the cup of wine, this wine is his blood. It's thoroughly biblical. It's exactly how Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 10. And then it's great strength over and against transubstantiation, consubstantiation, or the denial of the whole thing, is this Christological sacramental union that I've been talking about, where you take, just as Christ is true man and true God in one person, it's true bread and true body in one thing that you're receiving, true wine and true blood in the one thing that you're receiving. Okay, hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, please. Yes, just as a little aside on that subject, in my experience with three Catholic friends, particularly one who you know became a Lutheran here. Yeah. Uh, in discussing transubstantiation and asking what they thought it meant, mm-hmm. um, you find, at least in these three cases, they don't really are not locked into the Roman Catholic definition, exactly. but rather to their simple understanding. Once I explain the true presence, they say, "Oh, yeah, that's what I believe." Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, <sighs> so that takes us full circle back to my initial comments: is you want to ask 
When somebody says, well, do you believe in transubstantiation? We go, what do you mean by that? Because they're likely to say, do you believe that you're really eating Christ's body and drinking his blood? You see? So then you want to say, well, yeah, that's not technically what transubstantiation means, but yeah, that's what we believe. Just real quickly, I think uh, it's interesting to look at the uh, feeding of the 5,000 and the first miracle, changing water into wine. We know from those two events that he has total command over the elements. Right. And whatever he wants to do with the the wine and the bread on, on our altar exactly. is up to him. Yeah, thank you, Bob. If you If you have an eye for this, you can actually comb through the New Testament and see the catechesis leading up to the Lord's Supper. It's quite... It's quite um, full. There are many, many instances. I mean, even even very subtle things like um, Christ we, is, uh, where is he born? Bethlehem, which is called the house of bread. Um, what is he laid on when he's, uh, when he's newly born? Into a feeding trough. The only thing I suppose like less subtle would be putting him on a dinner plate. Um, there's all these hints and allusions to the fact that he is bread, that he is food. And you can trace this all the way along. But, Bob, you've put your finger on, I think, the two most important. It, for, because we're always told, well, if it's his body, how can it be everywhere at once? That's impossible. But nobody makes that claim when it comes to the five loaves and two fish suddenly multiplying all across the green grass where 5,000 plus are sitting, right? So, in the same way that he can do that, he can do that with his body without it changing its nature. And then, um, your other point, that if he can turn water into wine, how can we not believe him when he turns wine into blood? And it's, yeah. There's this kind of beautiful bookend to, um, you know, you can't push it too far, but his ministry starts with turning water into wine, and in a sense, his ministry ends with turning wine into blood. He's got, of course, um, yet one more miracle he does in healing Malchus' ear. Um, but just in terms of big sweeping themes, it is fun to see those things. Yeah. Please. So we have only one Bible. And how come? And I believe it's because of unbelief of the people, mm -hmm. that they don't believe 100% what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. Why the church don't do something about, you know, getting in agreement with, okay, this is just one book. Mm -hmm. Why do you have so many, you know, uh, ideas and concepts that the church or, or the leaders mm -hmm. can't come together and be in agreement and teach us the right thing instead of, going out, you know, spreading stuff. And, mm -hmm. and why it's so easy for us, as a human person, a human, to believe other stuff mm -hmm. so easily instead of being so hard to believe what the only one Bible says. Right. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, one of the things that you can do, or of course if you don't have time, your pastor can Believe it or not, I've gotten criticized for this. Why do you quote ch church fathers? Who cares about them? <laughs> what? 
Why in so many sermons do you bother to quote this guy and that guy and the other guy? Um, what do we have to do with them? Well, because what I'm trying to show is that there are doctrines where it is just that simple. If you look to the Orthodox teachers from the first century all the way to the present, they all have unanimously said, this is the body, this is the blood of Jesus. You can name, name any big name in the early church who's worth anything, and he believed that he was receiving the body and blood of Christ by mouth. The same is true for any of the great saints throughout the history of the church. They all believed universally that they were receiving the body and blood of Christ by mouth. It's, it's also the case that in Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism and the better parts of Anglicanism, in um, the better parts of Lutheranism, it's, it's universally, globally, and historically held that we're receiving the body and blood of Christ. The only reason we feel uncomfortable, uh, I think particularly here in Orange County, is because we're surrounded by a bunch of people who don't believe it, and we feel like we're the weirdos and the minority. If we were to zoom out globally, we, wouldn't realize, we would realize very quickly that that's not the case at all. And if you zoom out historically, you would realize very quickly that that's not the case at all. We're kind of entrenched and surrounded, but they're surrounded by an even greater cloud of witnesses, all of which, all of whom believe this. So I think, um, I think that that's the, that's the role of looking back at the history of what the church has taught, what the Orthodox fathers have taught on various topics. Because what you do find is for all the complexity and for all the argument and disagreement, there actually is very often a quite clean line on these doctrines that's traceable. It's where like the first thing that can keep you from heresy is knowing God's word and the second thing is knowing history. <laughs> because if something shows up in the 16th century, like we no longer believe this is the body and blood of Christ, you can kind of go, I bet that's wrong. <laughs> yeah, or Pentecostalism shows up, I think, in the 18th century. You can go, I bet that's wrong. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, thank you for your comment. I know it's frustrating because um, Jesus made a, a thing about it's not what's in a man that defiles him, or what's it's not what's the outside, but what's inside of a man. Could that be applied the same way with? Uh, What's going on here in this Lord's Supper? Because you're taking it inside, so that's making you clean. Mm. I think Jesus' point's very different there. Now, you could make some kind of sermonic point or statement on this, I think, if you're skilled enough, which I'm probably not. But uh, remember there, Jesus' point is, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, um, but what comes out of him, namely out of his heart. Okay, so then what is what is the Lord's Supper then? The Lord's Supper is not going to be food that goes into us um, as any other food and then um, and then cleanses us. Okay, it's going to be food that goes into us and changes our heart because the heart is what defiles. And so this food that comes in has to touch the heart, has to change the heart. Um, it, just in case you think I'm making this up, this is exactly the point of Jeremiah 31 here quoted in Wolfmuller. Um, the new covenant is precisely in that it affects the heart of man. So let's just, let's look at that real quick. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I should have said this is page 136. And quoting Jeremiah 31. 
31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. That new covenant comes in the upper room with Jesus giving his cup. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and will write it on their hearts. So, what comes, the food that enters your body can't defile you because your body just expels it. That's what Jesus says. It's the heart that defiles you and what comes up out of the heart, out of your mouth that defiles you. So how are we going to take care of that defilement? You have to have this new covenant that you eat or drink that comes into you, but it isn't just expelled. It actually cleanses and changes your heart. Thus, Jeremiah, um, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That has its counterpoint in what just preceded out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. So they broke, there was a divorce, there was a marriage that fell apart um, solely on account of God's unfaithful people. And so the new covenant comes, I will be their God, they shall be my my people. So there's a sense in which this new covenant is a, is a remarriage and a marriage that now can't be broken. And that might escape us too, but this is one aspect. Christ gives us his body and blood so that we become one flesh with him. Remember the essence of marriage? The two shall become one. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And that's what the Lord Jesus is doing. That's why it is both a marriage and a wedding feast um, and also a foretaste of that great wedding feast that is to come. So this is why the Lord's Supper is so often understood in marital terms as well. All right, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So there's an immediacy that's part of the new covenant where you can see now, knowing what the new covenant is, that Christ himself, through the hands of a pastor, but it's Christ himself who puts his blood to your lips. You don't need anyone to come up and say, hey, do you see what's happening here? The Lord's forgiving you. Um, he himself is saying for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And those words for you, as Luther says, require every heart to believe. So this is why when you go to communion, um, you know the Lord is speaking directly to you and to all the saints gathered there. By the way, the for you is uh, plural. It's not singular. And so it is for me. But it's also for you and you and you. It's for us, plural. And it's never separated from that. It's never just me and Jesus. But it is, in fact, Jesus directly speaking to me and then to you and then to all of us as one. Okay, so hopefully that, that gives some bearing on that and why. Uh, yeah, please. Tell me a good response for this. Most of the Christians over the years that I talk with about baptism and the Lord's Supper, they say, well, I don't need to believe in infant baptism. I don't need to believe in the body and blood. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. He says that in his word, and that's all I need for eternal life. Yeah. I tend to say, well, I think, yes, okay, but you're missing so much. But 
They say, I don't need any more. That's enough. Yeah. I mean, there they show themselves to be the instructors of Jesus. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of the arrogance hidden under this humility, this, this, ah, sh- ah, shucks, it's just the cross is enough for me. I'm a, well, you've just negated everything your, your Lord has told you to do, which is be baptized and teach and continue to be discipled yourself. That's what it means to take his yoke upon you and learn from him continually. Um, so, yeah, this is, however you want to do it, In and this is where it's art, not science, because it has to do with your relationship to them and what you can say and what you can get away with and what's going to be profitable. Um, but generally speaking, try to poke holes in that. Well, which Jesus is it that died for you on the cross? They'll probably be confused. Is it the Jesus of the Bible? Oh, yeah, of course it's the Jesus of the Bible. Well, the Jesus of the Bible also says all these other things. And then just let it kind of marinate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's this um, there's this faux humility. Oh, the cross is enough for me. I don't need any of this other nonsense. It's the same Jesus who you claim died on the cross for you, who gave you all of this other quote-unquote nonsense. Are you sure you want to think of it like that? <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Be ornery. Poke holes as best you can. Please. Did I see another? Yes, yes. Well, in response to that, too, depending on how far you can go with it, but I was looking, I mentioned this to you a couple of weeks ago, looking at the scripture in Christ, if I had lived at the time of Christ, Christ goes into the temple and throws the, yeah, the tables overturned, and he's calling people names. What kind of a man is this? This is a sacred place. And it came to the point where people said, oh, he's doing it by the devil. And other people said, no, I think we, we think he's the Messiah. Well, they saw all these miracles. Would I accept them then? And do we accept them now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have a miracle in front of us now with baptism and communion. <laughs> Am I accepting this miracle now right. in the 20th or 21st century? Right. It's a great point. <laughs> if I were in Bethlehem, I would have opened my door and welcomed him. Um, really? You open your door to his teaching now? Um, if I were then, I would have believed the very first miracle that I saw. Really? Do you believe the miracles he still performs every Sunday in the divine service? Yeah, it's a great point. Then the other thing is with the attacks on the church with doctrine differences, mm-hmm. I, the way I'm seeing it now, the devil sees us as an object to be defeated. And I think these differences show we're worth fighting over for the devil's what he sees in the church. Yeah. It's it's an opponent. Yeah. And if, if we were not an opponent of the devil, he wouldn't bother with us if we were already in his camp. Oh so exactly. This is the something he wants to destroy. Exactly. Yeah, this is I mean, what a gift, what a priceless gift he's trying to take away from us. He's trying to turn this all imaginary symbolic. And then what happens in those churches where it's taught as imaginary symbolic? What happens? Do you do it every week? No. Do you do it every month? Maybe. Is it optional? Yeah. Why would you even do it? I can think of Jesus without the oyster cracker and prepackaged grape juice. I can think about him just fine. I don't need these things. So maybe this is for baby Christians. No, I don't commune at all. So you can see what the devil does. And of course, I could riff on this deeper, but I just, I, I won't. I, it all traces back, of course, to the Garden of Eden. And remember the original temptation, 
It's before a tree and the fruit hanging from a tree. And did God really say? And now we have the tree of the cross and the fruit hanging on that, his body and blood. And we've got the same temptation. Did God really say? So here's your personal chance to relive the Garden of Eden every Sunday morning and say, I know I believe you, Lord, when you say that this is your body and blood given and shed for me for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe you. And of course, the devil still goes, did God really say? I don't know. Maybe he just meant symbolize. How could this be? And then he's just throwing every single dagger and dart he can at you to get you to not believe the plain words of Jesus, just like he did with Eve. Throwing every dagger and dart he could to just not get her to believe the plain words and the day you eat of it, you will die. So simple. And it was made so hard by the devil. Now it's so simple. This is my body, this is my blood shed for your forgiveness. And we try, and the devil's again trying to make it so hard. So a lot of this is humility and a lot of this is just realizing the position theologically that God's put us in. We're standing before the very tree of life and the fruit that hangs from it. And we either eat or drink in faith based on what he said or we deny it as Eve denied it. May I ask another question or is belaboring? Okay, sure. Uh, what is the Calvinist and I assume like Presbyterian view of communion? Yeah, so the way to cut to the chase with the Calvinist view is do is to ask the Calvinist this question. Are you receiving the true body and blood of Christ in your mouth for the forgiveness of your sins? If they're truly a Calvinist, they'll say no. If they're a Calvinist, but you ask them that question, they say yes, they're actually a Lutheran on that point. okay? Because Calvin's doctrine proper is that the only thing you're receiving in your physical mouth is bread and wine. And then your soul's doing this other heavenly feeding on Jesus and this consuming Jesus. Faith is feeding or the soul is feeding. So they've got this double eating. Your body's eating physical stuff. Your soul or your faith is eating the the Christ. And so this is where they'll get, you know, oh no, we're communing with Jesus. Oh no, I'm partaking of the body and blood of Jesus in my soul. Um, you know, they don't tell you all of this. So the way to cut through all of this nonsense is to just say, what are you receiving in your mouth at the Lord's Supper? And if they say bread, and the, if they're honest, they'll say bread and wine. If they're Calvinist and honest. Um, again, and if they say, well, bread that is his body and wine that is his blood, you go, on that point, you're not Calvinist, my friend. No. So hopefully that helps. Okay. Um, let's, uh, let's go quickly here, which I intended to do anyway, but 137. Um, Wolf Mueller highlights the do this in Jesus' words. Um, and I think his point is on the third line that Jesus puts the Lord's Supper at the center of the church's life. Um, of course, he does this when he says this is the New Testament. What is? His cup. Yeah, for crying out loud. That's at the center. And then the do this, he puts at the center of the church's worship. In the, um, Of course, in the early church, it was always, always the Lord's Supper was present. Uh, it was only later aberrations where the Lord's Supper wasn't, and circumstances where the Lord's Supper wasn't present. All right, and then body and blood. Of course, um, this just comes down to like, do you believe Jesus' words or not? 
because they're plain, they're unequivocal. If he, there is the Greek word for symbolize, he could have said that if that's what he wanted to say. Um, and there's historical argument too, because the, the New Testament documents don't just like rain down on a heavenly platter all at once. There's, in some cases, decades between the time in which the Gospels are written. And so, so if ever like the church got confused on this point, was like, hey, we all believe that this is the body and blood of Christ we're receiving by mouth, it would have been very easy for another Gospel writer to just swoop in and correct this and put the word symbolize in Jesus' mouth and clarify this. It would have been very easy for St. Paul or any other biblical writer who's writing decades after the fact to just plainly clarify that, hey, all you Christians who are also writing that this is Christ's true body and blood, you're in error. It's symbolic. But in fact, what you see is not that, but the opposite. Doubling down, doubling down, doubling down, to the point where probably what's the latest of the Gospels, the Gospel of John, doubles down so hard. Think of John 6, where it's no longer body that you must eat, but flesh. And it's no longer that the estheo, the eat, but it's chew. So unless you, like this is, you can see John doubling down through the, he's recalling these words of Jesus. Jesus himself used this language, but he's emphasizing this as the chronologically last gospel. He's doubling down on that language. Unless you chew the flesh of Christ, you have no life in you. And then of course, what's happening rhetorically there is, well, this is a hard saying and they all depart from him and Jesus turns to his disciples and says, will you also depart? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So you can even see in the three-dimensional history of the early church and the biblical texts themselves that there's nothing but doubling down on this point that it's Christ's true body and blood. And if you reject this, you reject him. And you're no better than those crowds that dispersed. But if you are one of his disciples, you will confess with Peter and the rest, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. What words are those? Eat my flesh and drink my blood and you will have my life in you. Those are the words of eternal life. All right. So um, I think beautiful statement on page uh, 138 by Luther. Let's let's hit that and that'll probably bring us to a close for the day. We may... Oh, Let's try to, let's, let's squeeze it in even if we're a couple minutes late. So here's Luther. With this word, you can strengthen your conscience and say, if a hundred thousand devils together with all fanatics should rush forward crying, how can bread and wine be Christ's body and blood and such? I know that all spirits and scholars together are not as wise as is the divine majesty in his little finger. Now here stands Christ's word. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the New Testament. And so on. Here we stop to watch those who will call themselves his masters and make the matter different from what he has spoken. It is true indeed that if you take away the word or regard the sacrament without the words, you have nothing but mere bread and wine. But if the words remain with them, as they shall and must, then by virtue of the words, it is truly Christ's body and blood. What Christ's lips say and speak, so it is. He can never lie or deceive. 
All right. Um, so Wolf Mueller has two more points that he brings up. Um, the forgiveness of sins and then for you. In the forgiveness of sins, the first paragraph will do, I think, to make his point. When we know what the Lord's Supper is, then we ask another question. What benefit does the Lord's Supper give? So when you go to communion, you don't want to commune unworthily in the language of 1 Corinthians 11. You want to examine yourself and know that I'm a sinner and I'm coming there for forgiveness. When you're thinking about the essence of the sacrament, just have these two questions in mind. And I know most of you already do, but what is it? the body and blood of Christ. Why am I receiving it? For the forgiveness of my sins. Those two questions are just such a beautiful pattern to have in your mind, especially if you're harried or hassled or late or wrangling children or whatever else the case may be. What is it? True body and blood of Christ, because he says so. Why am I receiving or why am I receiving it? For the forgiveness of my sins, because he says so. Okay, so um What benefit does the Lord's Supper give? The answer is in these words. This is my blood of the covenant. What we're doing here is quoting Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So again, it's Jesus' own words that tell us that there's forgiveness of sins here. Forgiveness of sins different than that which he has won on the cross? No, identical. On the cross, his body is given, his blood is shed. It's this very sacrifice that is given for us to eat and to drink, communicating that forgiveness he won once and for all on the cross to us, present tense, you see. So it's no different forgiveness of sins, same forgiveness. And then the for you we talked about already, that means it requires your heart to believe it's a personal and individual thing, but never to the exclusion of the larger truth. Or to, and that larger truth is the church. So that is, yeah, it is for me and it requires my heart to believe, but that for you is plural. So I'm realizing that he's speaking that not only to me, but to my brothers and sisters next to me as well. And that I'm not saved by myself. I am saved along with all the other saints and the whole church of God. Um, so that probably does a sufficient job summarizing the Lutheran position on these points. I thank you for uh, your indulgence. I went two minutes over. Next uh, next week, we're actually off because it's Holy Week. So we're going to take a break. Um, next Thursday, we'll have uh, Maundy Thursday service at 12 and 7. By the way, I, I know most of you know this, but this coming Sunday is Palm Sunday. Okay, I try to do this Palm Sunday. And then you've got Easter Sunday. Those are the bookends of Holy Week. But then Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, you've got this three-day-long service. It's called the Triduum, and that's the the three days Triduum. And Maundy Thursday, obviously on Thursday, Good Friday, obviously on Good Friday, and then Easter Vigil on Holy Saturday. Those three form a unit. So there's an invocation that begins on Maundy Thursday, and you don't hear another invocation or blessing until the end of Easter Vigil. So if you want to join in for the Triduum this year, that's available for you. Of course, scheduling only allows you to pop in for one of those three services or um, just do that. But I do want to uh, make you aware that that's coming up. No class next week. In two weeks, we will hit chapter seven, the how of good works. The Lord be with you.